Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Exactly a year ago this week, we introduced you to Justin Fairfax. His historic election as Virginia's lieutenant governor in November 2017 made him only the second African-American in Virginia's history to be elected statewide. But he stands poised to make history again. If Ralph Northam resigns the governorship over a shockingly racist photo that appeared on his medical school yearbook page in 1984, Fairfax could become only the second African-American governor of Virginia. Who is he? We're running this episode of Cape Up so you can find out. Yes, Fairfax has denied an accusation of sexual assault against him. The Post looked into it a year ago and reports now that it didn't run with the story because it couldn't corroborate the woman's account. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, thanks very much for being on the podcast and for having us here in your office in Richmond. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you and your team and uh, really excited to be on with you. So you, you have to help me understand something. Sure. So on the drive here, going down 95 <laughs> near Falmouth, <laughs> was something that literally took my breath away. Right. And that was a huge Confederate flag. Right, right. Now, you're only the second African-American to be elected statewide in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yes. And just last November. Right, that's correct. It's like there are two realities here at play right. between that Confederate flag and your election. Right. One of right. progress and one of regress or right. like staying stuck in the past. Right. Which one of those realities represents Virginia? You know, I think that we've always had these competing forces and these different strands uh, and narratives here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, just like in the country. But Virginia, in so many ways, is a microcosm uh, for the entire country. It's the home of American slavery, but also the place that elected the first African-American to be governor. And Governor Doug Wilder, he was actually elected lieutenant governor in 1985 and uh, later governor in 1989. And so it's always been a question of, with each successive generation, do we, as uh, Abraham Lincoln once famously said, do we rise to the better angels of our nature or uh, do we go down the path of division and, and darkness and racism and xenophobia and misogyny and, and hatred? And I think that people are really choosing the more positive, hopeful path. And I think that's what our election uh, last November was all about. So then is that why you you think you won or or was it only because folks are so angry about Donald Trump <laughs> that they just decided to just throw their votes at the Democrats. Yeah, you know, I think it was a combination of things. I, I think, obviously, what we've seen out of this White House and out of, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, has really been a political accelerant in many ways. It's gotten people engaged in a way that, you know, many of them may not have been otherwise. I, I think that uh, the tone that he set, the policies he's pursued, whether it's the Muslim ban or uh, any of the other very, you know, sort of harsh and discriminatory things, uh, people are rejecting that. Uh, and in our election last year, we had you know, some folks on the other side uh, of the of the ballot uh, who really you know seized up on that same kind of strategy. And they ran a Trump style campaign in Virginia and people rejected it. Uh, they ran these you know, horrible television ads featuring uh, purported MS-13 gang members and, and used a, a really scary photo of a Hispanic Latino man with you know, tattoos on his face. And it turned out that that picture was actually from an El Salvadorian prison. 
Uh, and so these are the links that they will go to to try to scare people. And what we said leading up into that election uh, was that you have two very different visions on the ballot. Our vision was one of hope, of opportunity, of educational and economic opportunity, of health care, uh, 400,000 more Virginians. And, and that's the one that people overwhelmingly uh, endorsed and supported in November. Were you surprised by what you what you termed Trump style tactics in the in the campaign? And we all saw it with those <laughs> right. with those ads. Right. Um, and uh, on television, right. I mean, even in this day and age, were you surprised by the lengths to which the gubernatorial candidate, Ed Gillespie, went to try to, I guess, curry favor with the Republican base, the Trump base? Right. Right. You know, it was a little surprising. Um, I have to say I was surprised, but I wasn't shocked. Um, you know, I think people may have you know, mislearned the lessons of 2016 and thought that that kind of politics was the kind of politics that you needed to win. Uh, what a lot of people forget actually here in Virginia is that Secretary Hillary Clinton won Virginia and by over five percentage points. And so Virginians rejected that kind of politics in 2016. They tremendously rejected it in 2017. And so it was surprising, it was disappointing to see, but I was incredibly uh, inspired by the fact that the voters came out in massive numbers. And we all three for our statewide offices got the most votes for our respective offices in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. In our race, we got 1.36 million votes for lieutenant governor. We also won Democrats 15 seats in the House of Delegates, which was yeah. a wave. And so I think the voters responded, and I'm very, very excited about what the future holds. So, I mean, you uh, obviously, you're a Democrat. You yes. were you're running to get Democratic votes. Sure. But given the nature of Ed Gillespie's campaign and the nature of Trump right. and the nature of Republicanism. Now, did you hear on the campaign trail from Republicans right. who said, this is not me, this is not who <laughs> yes. I am, who my my party has been, yes. where I want this country to go? Absolutely. Uh, we sure did. And I still to this day uh, hear from people who have come up to me and said, Justin, you know, I'm a Republican, but I proudly voted for you. You know, Ralph Northam and Mark Herring and others because uh, you know, they did reject that kind of politics. And I have a lot of friends across the spectrum, Democrats, Republicans, independents, you know, folks who have you know, different views, but who also believe that we can disagree without being disagreeable. The politics does not have to go into the gutter of personal attacks and going after someone personally, which is something that we have seen featured in the Trump era. And we really can rise to the better angels of our nature. And it does not all have to be about going after someone's character or making up false attacks and, and really dragging the process down uh, into the mud. We really can rise. And I think we proved that last year. Well, I'm going to have to tell you that I was at home on election night, like frantic. <laughs> Not frantic isn't the right word. Fretting right. because, sure, sure. You know, I needed Virginia to go the way that it did, but I was right. scared right. because Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy. Right. I mean, even just near where we're sitting right now right. is the the Confederate White House. Right. I mean, we are right. we're like in the middle of it. Right. And so my big fear was. You know, if any state is going to hang in there with Donald Trump, it's going to be Virginia. Yeah. Was I wrong to think that? You know, I'll never say you're wrong, Jonathan. <laughs> I think you're, too, you're, all, Good you're answer. right all the time. But, uh, but, I, but I will say this. It, it, it does. And you, you started out with a great question, very insightful about Virginia's history. 
we just have these powerful forces that run through our history and it runs through the veins of the Commonwealth of Virginia and, and all of its citizens. And, and that really is uh, this notion of who do we want to be, who we're going to define ourselves to be. And throughout various points uh, in history, you know, Virginians have been the ones who have led the fight for progress, whether you're talking about Barbara Johns, who led one of the walkouts of her school in Prince Edward County, which was one of the precursor cases to Brown v. Board. If you're talking about Oliver Hill and, of course, we mentioned Doug Wild. Uh, the first African-American elected uh, governor, there have been all of these you know, moments in, in history where Virginians have led the way. And I believe that in 2017 uh, was another instance of that happening. And, and as I used to say, you know, a lot on the campaign trail, I believe that Virginia would be the match that sparks the wildfire of progressive change all across the country. And it's really what we've seen, uh, because since Virginia, we've gotten Alabama. Uh, we saw what happened in that Senate race, another race that no one thought, you know, a Democrat could win. But people are energized and engaged. And it really is a wildfire progressive change, I think, that's that's taking over the country. So you mentioned a, se- a moment ago about how history runs through through our veins, through the veins of, of Virginians, yes. considering this was the capital of the Confederacy. Absolutely. And I want to ask you about your own history and a pr- yes. person in particular, Simon Fairfax. Yes. Who, who was he? So Simon Fairfax is my several greats ago grandfather and uh, great, great, great grandfather. That's right. Three greats. That's right. Three greats ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so he actually you know lived here uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we as a family, you know, have, have been tracing our history for a long time. My parents in particular and my, and my dad specifically has been sort of the family genealogist. And we've been piecing together parts of our history over the last several decades uh, and had gotten pretty far, but had not gotten all the way. And and actually something really you know, amazing happened about two days before I was sworn in as lieutenant governor of Virginia on January the 13th. There was a document that was discovered in the Fairfax County Courthouse, and it was a uh, a lot of folks working together who, uh, you know, some of whom did not know each other before uh, this process started, but uh, were able to find this document that actually was the manumission paper for my great 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 grandfather Simon Fairfax, which was signed in 1798 in Virginia, and actually was the ninth Lord Fairfax who freed uh, my great 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 grandfather in that document in 1798. And so uh, when we discovered it, my dad, it, it came into his possession. And as I'm walking out to the portico to, to raise my right hand to take the oath of office as lieutenant governor of Virginia, my dad, about 20 minutes before, hands me a piece of paper in an envelope and, uh, and actually tried to initially hand it back to him because I didn't want to lose it because I, you know, there was so much going on that day. And he insisted. He said, no, you know, son, I want you to have this. This is very powerful and will be meaningful. And your kids and grandkids will want to know about this. And so uh, once I saw uh, what it was, it, it was incredibly powerful. And in fact, I uh, had that manumission document in my breast pocket at the precise moment that I uh, raised my right hand to take the oath of office as lieutenant governor. And so just really reminded me of how powerful that journey has been, not just for my family, not just for Virginia, but for this entire country and uh, how we are a microcosmic example of those strands that do run through our history. Um, and unbeknownst to the folks who are listening, is, is this the actual copy that your father gave you that's that, sitting in front of me yes, right now? Yes, that is now? the actual copy. It's not the original document. Right, right. Exactly. copy that your father gave you, which is folded in threes. Yes. So this is, you put it in your, you put it in your breast pocket. Yes. Did your father want you to have this with you for the historic fact of being able to say that when you were taking the oath of office to be the lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, that 
with you was your great, great, great grandfather. Yes, uh, absolutely. He, he did. And, and I'm so happy that he did. And I'm so you know, grateful and amazed. My dad wanted me to have that, to be able to say that and to share that story with you know, our family down the line and, and also really with the world about this is the journey that America has taken. And again, we get to choose what direction we will go in as a society. And it's about decisions we make in each generation that takes us either forward or backwards. Now, I need you, I need you to, to get personal here because sure. for me, I mean, this isn't my story. But, <laughs> it's all of our story. But, but it, yeah, it yeah. is all of our story. Absolutely. And how is it for you, just personally, as an American, leave aside the, the, sure. the politics, but as an American who ran for the public trust, right. was earned the public trust, right. and is now in an incredible leadership position, given the history of of your family, how right. does that how does that hit you here? <laughs> yeah, in the heart, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, it's very very emotional, and it was you know very powerful, obviously uh, at that moment uh, on inauguration, but even since then and uh, during the course of the campaign, and really for a very long time, I've talked about this. Uh, concept that I like to call spiritual wealth. And what that is, and I talk about in the context of our story, you know, we had a little bit of a rough go of it. Uh, you know, our parents got divorced when I was about five, you know, loved them very dearly, but that made it life, you know, kind of hard for us. We had to move to Washington, D.C., moved in with my late maternal grandparents, mm-hmm. two amazing people. And and what I said is that over time, people, you know, helped us so tremendously that uh, you know, my mom was able to buy the house right across the street from my grandparents. They lived in number 14. My mom bought number nine. She still lives mm-hmm. in the same house today. And also, with the help of me and my mom and dad and others, were able to send all four of her children to college and two of us to law school, starting from that very difficult place. And what I always say is that to make that story possible, people gave us what I call spiritual wealth. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had faith, we had hope, we had optimism. Uh, we got a high-quality education with people who loved us and said, no matter how dark today may seem, uh, tomorrow can be brighter. And that really is the reason that I got involved in public service. It's the reason that I began to run for, for public office, because I, I have said that when someone gives you that kind of spiritual wealth in your life, you then have a spiritual debt that you must repay. And you have to go out and fight and make that story possible for other people. And so all of that really hit me uh, when you talk about this manumission document and, and, and that moment in history, because I've always felt like I've carried the spiritual wealth around of my ancestors. These are people who have sacrificed, who've been through so much, but never quit, never gave up, treated people with dignity and respect, and got to learn a lot about my ancestors. And, and, and they always were people who were looking out for other people. In fact, I have several greats ago, grandmother who donated land to build a, an historic church in the Reston area. It's called Cartersville Baptist Church. And my several greats ago aunt, Rose Carter, it was dedicated in her honor. And so this church was uh, founded in 1863 by free blacks. At that time, it was burned down a couple of times in some suspicious fires, but was most recently rebuilt in 1979, which is the year I was born. And so it still stands today. It's really an incredible thing. And and, and a final note on that, Rose Carter, I visited her gravesite. We have a wonderful friend named Carmen Powell, who is featured in the Washington Post story, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, found this gravesite. It's right across from her home. And Carmen wanted me to come visit the gravesite during the course of the campaign. So we were looking for a day to go do it. And, you know, we couldn't make you know, a particular day work. So finally, we said, let's just get it done. So I want to make sure that we get to see it. Well, we walk up to this gravesite uh, and I see the name Rose Carter and I see that she has passed away in 1905. But then I also see uh, that she passed away on January the 18th, 1905. The day that we ended up going there was January 18th. 
2017. We were there 112 years to the day, uh, and we didn't plan it. And things like that continued to happen throughout the course of the campaign, and it just felt like a really you know, magical, spiritual uh, experience. And I felt like this is you know, way bigger than me. And, and uh, this really is all of our story. Do you have a sense of, just given that story you just told, yeah. do you, how do you not have a sense of destiny? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean that seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, I feel tinges of that uh, at times uh, in particular, because, you know, I've also been surrounded just by amazing people and the things that we had to experience and go through to get uh, not just through this election, but to this point in life, it really is. Uh, I know uh, Senator Cory Booker always often talks about a conspiracy of love. You know, mm-hmm. you know, have a whole bunch of people who had to come together, and you could really not have predicted that things would play out uh, in this way. And so, certainly, uh, to now serve as you know Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, to be only the second African American ever elected to statewide office here in the Commonwealth, and follow in the footsteps of someone, a uh, you know, great man like L. Douglas Wilder, who's a dear friend. You do feel uh, that as well, but you also feel like the story is bigger than you. And you feel like if you know you can do the amount of good that we know we can do uh, serving in this capacity in every respect, both the legislatively and, and otherwise, and it, it really would be worth all the sacrifices that people have made. And it will create avenues of opportunity for others. It's repaying that spiritual debt. You also had this document with you at a particular moment yes. while presiding over the Senate, which yes. you do as lieutenant governor. What was that moment? Yes, uh, I did, in fact, have the uh, same document, the manumission document, uh, on me. And uh, there were a couple of occasions recently where senators rose to adjourn the Senate session in memory of two Confederate generals. So uh, on one occasion, it was Stonewall Jackson uh, was the person for whom they wanted to adjourn. And and then several days later, uh, it was Robert E. Lee. And when I got word that those were the motions that were going to be made, and as Lieutenant Governor, of course, I preside uh, at the dais and preside over those motions, I let people know in, in no uncertain terms, let senators know and the staff that I would not preside over those motions, you know, in honor of my family's history, in honor of the progress that we've made as Virginians and, and as Americans, and, you know, and as a way to send a signal about, you know, what our values are and the fact that we need to include everybody. And so I actually stepped down from the dais when those motions were made. And on the day that uh, the Robert E. Lee motion was made, I, I both stepped down from the dais and I had the manumission document of my three greats ago grandfather, Simon Fairfax from 1798. I uh, had it in my breast pocket once again, again, just reminding myself of, of that journey and of what others have sacrificed and how they've had to stand up uh, for themselves and for others to be included. And uh, and I think that that is a struggle that continues to this mm-hmm. day. And it's one that I you know proudly joined it. Well, it's not that you, you didn't do this in any kind of showboaty kind of right. way with no, with <laughs> fanfare and fireworks and, right. <laughs> you know, a lot of histrionics. You did this very quietly, so right. quietly that many people didn't even know what was happening. Right. No, that's right. And, and I made it clear. And I, I gave you know, the senators a heads up because I have enormous respect for the institution, uh, for the Capitol, for the Senate itself. And so I did not want a grandstand. That was not my point. But what I did want to do was send a very clear mm-hmm. uh, message that, A, I would not preside over those motions. And B, I'm looking for opportunities to tell everyone's history to not exclude people and to make sure that we are you know, rising together. How did those senators react? And are we talking just Republican senators or <laughs> Democratic and Republican senators, a, a bipartisan mix who you had to say, I'm not doing this? 
Yeah, I, I will tell you, I mean, in terms of so those in the Democratic caucus, you know, were fully supportive of my decision. And, and I informed as many of them as I could. Uh, you know, it's a it's a kind of a hairy uh, time when you're uh, right sure. before about to preside over the Senate. So I got to as many folks as I could. And on the Republican side, I, I will say this. There were certainly some Republican senators who voiced their displeasure uh, with my stepping down from the dais. And, and I, you know, respectfully told them that I appreciate you sharing your opinion, but it's just that your opinion. And and I'll tell you that I'm going to stand my ground. And I think that was very important to establish that up close and personal. But I will also say this, even uh, for the most part, uh, the, the, the Republican senators who disagreed with my decision and, and, and who would have you know liked to have seen something different, they, for the most part, were very respectful. And I, in particular, there, there, there were a couple of senators who who asked me personally, you know, Justin, I hope that, you know, this was not offensive to you and, and we would never want to offend you and we understand your concerns and respect your decision to do it. And um, and I think that's that's to their credit. Again, I think you can agree without being disagreeable, but, you know, we have to tell history accurately. Why do you think it took so long for there to be another African-American to be <laughs> elected statewide? Yeah. Yeah. It was it was about 30 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. To your point. Yeah, absolutely. It is a long time. And uh, you know, I think it was a, a combination uh, of factors. You know, obviously, you know, when Governor Wilder was elected and first lieutenant governor, I mean, that was an extraordinary thing mm-hmm. to have happened in 1985. And you had an African-American man who himself was, I believe, the, the grandson of slaves in this country and in this commonwealth. He has a great book called Son of Virginia, which I have read, and, and an even better book about his first run called When Hell Froze Over. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite political book. And to think about how extraordinary it was to have done it at the time that he did it, I, I think I'm reminded that given that it took another 30 years, that was really a, a special moment in history. But but also, you know, I, I know others, really great people have run uh, for office. It's difficult. You got to raise a lot of money. You got to you know, be able to connect with people. I think the pace of progress is moving so rapidly in the world that now you can connect with people halfway around the world, you know, without ever having met them, you know, the pace of communication. And uh, and so if you can get your message out in ways that you may not have been able to as easily before. And I think people are looking for, you know, genuine folks in politics. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really the direction we're heading in. Well, since you've mentioned him several times, and he is a historic <laughs> figure, L. Doug, L. Doug Wilder, who yes. was the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yes. He's a mentor. Yes, uh, absolutely. Of yours. Absolutely. What advice did he give you? He, he gave me some great advice along the way. And one of the best pieces of, of advice that he's given, I think he said this publicly as well. He said, just have one message for everybody. You know, you can emphasize different points uh, of that message. But, you know, when you go to Southwest Virginia or Southside or Hampton Roads or Northern Virginia or the Valley, people have the same concerns. You know, focus on what their families you know, are concerned about, healthcare, education, the economy. And again, there, there will be some aspects of it that people will want emphasized more than others. But that really was the message that we had. And we focused on economic security and opportunity for all Virginians. That was uh, what our umbrella slogan was for our campaign. And everything sort of fell into that. So no matter where I went, that's what I talked about. How do we get your family the ability to rise economically, to get educational opportunity, access to high quality health care? And how do we do that most effectively? And that message really resonated tremendously uh, with voters. And we won in places that people did not expect us to win uh, in the primary and, and in the general. Did you go to places where people didn't expect you to go? <laughs> yes. And that was another great piece of advice from Governor Wilder. And and also, he, you know, we followed his example. Uh, when he uh, ran in 1985 for lieutenant governor, uh, he was sort of famous for going to places that people did not expect him to go, particularly at that time in history as an African-American man. And yet he went to you know rural areas and, and other parts that people didn't think would be hospitable to him. But lo and behold, uh, actually the opposite 
opposite ended up happening. People were so appreciative uh, that he showed up, that he talked to them, that he listened, that he was genuine. And, and we did that. I went to places where, you know, Donald Trump got 80 percent of the vote. But I showed up because I said, you know what? These are still people. They are Virginians and they have families and concerns just like everybody else. And we've got to figure out ways to help everybody rise no matter where they are. And I think that that's part of how we were able to win so much, um, you know, in all different parts of the Commonwealth. That uh, what you just said there reminds me of something that another guest on the podcast who is running for for governor (laughs) of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. She's great. Yeah. Um, She's she's, a good friend. She said when I asked her about because at that point. Everyone was talking about, by everyone I mean, Democrats. Sure. Oh my God, white working class, what have we done? We've forgotten them. We've got to put all our efforts into focusing on them if we want to win again. And she wrote, I wrote, she said, we're having this false argument about whether it's the white working class or people of color, whether it's identity politics or whether we need to have a centrist policy. No, we need people to believe that politicians will do our jobs. Right. I think it's powerful. Um, I think that's powerful, and I think that's spot on. And by the way, Stacey uh, is, a, is a great friend. Uh, I believe she is going to be the next governor uh, of Georgia, and I'm, I'm proud to support her and, and to help her. And and I think she's spot on. I, mean, I think we have had these false choices that have been put before us for way too long, and I think that's part of what people are rejecting, uh, the pitting of one group you know, against another. And uh, the, this whole notion of even some of the nomenclature, I mean, you talk about you know, the white working class voter. Well, there are African-American working class voters, and there are Hispanic working class voters, and Indian American, Asian American, and people of all stripes who are just trying to rise economically. And, and I think that the more that we can put those stories together, as opposed to pit people against one another, the more powerful not only will be in our political coalitions, but as a country. You know, we talk about rising together, uh, and I truly believe that we have to rise together if we want that rise to be permanent and and lasting uh, and something that all of our families and all of our communities uh, can be proud of. And so I agree with uh, what Stacey has said there. And I also see it in the faces of the voters. I mean, I, as I talk to voters all around Virginia, they were just tired of being divided. They were tired of people, you know, to the exclusion of others, uh, you know, only telling one version of history, of not including people in their vision for what it meant to be a Virginian and what it meant to be an American. And uh, the broader that vision is, uh, the better off that we will be. How were you received when you went into those counties, into those districts where sure. Trump won by 80, 80 <laughs> percent? How were you how were you received there? Yeah. You know, actually, in, in almost every case, I was very warmly received. Uh, and I would say this, too. I, there, there were plenty of people who in some of these places, uh, I would say that, you know, I, I knew they weren't going to vote for me. And I would say, you know how I knew that? Because someone told me to my face, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to vote for you, you know. And, and I was I was fine with that because what would happen oftentimes is even in those situations, I would say, you know what, that's that's fine. Uh, you don't have to vote for me. But if you wouldn't mind, tell me what are the top three things that you want for your children and your grandchildren. If you could list them out, if you had a magic wand, what would those three things be? And it's an amazing thing would happen when I got into those kinds of discussions. It's almost like a shield would come down. Hmm. Like we then we're starting to have a conversation as people, in particular because they started talking about their children and their grandchildren. There's nothing more personal uh, to people than their children. And I always say, if you want to show somebody you care about them, take care of their children. Do something nice for their children, because that's the thing they care about most in the world. And so they would start to tick off things like, well, I just want my kid to you know, get a good job or, you know, have health care or, you know, maybe start a small business, get married, have some kids. And 
And, you know, there will certainly be different ways of getting there. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that there aren't policy differences. There certainly are. But it humanized the conversation and the interaction. And I had plenty of people who said, look, you know, I may still not be voting for you, but I respect you. And I appreciate the fact that you listened to me, that you had some ideas and some thoughts and, and that you cared enough to ask me about my kids. And I remember going to one place where actually it was a number of uh, coal miners who were fantastic, wonderful people. And I spent a long period of time, even after our formal meeting, talking with many of them. And some of them started reaching their wallets. And they're pulling out, you know, photos of their kids. And they're telling me how their daughter, you know, is maybe not be following them into the mine, but she's going to get her HVAC certification at the local community college and, and how their son just started a new business and uh, how he's doing well. And the more those conversations that we have, the richer uh, I think our political lives and our uh, civic lives will be. And you're repairing damage that's been done over time because people got to look at me up close and personal. They see you for who you are. They kick the tires. And I think they respect the fact that you respect them. And, and again, that's why I think we won in, in some places that people were really shocked that we won. Um, I noticed how you said in almost every <laughs> in almost every case you were you were warmly welcomed and, right. and well received. Talk about the those almost cases <laughs> where you show up and it wasn't terribly friendly. Yeah, yeah, we certainly had some of those experiences, and you know, in politics, uh, in particular, uh, those are things that that happen. You know, whether you're knocking on someone's door and you show up, and they they see that you're a Democrat, or they you know, have some other reason to not you know really support <laughs> some you. Some other reason <laughs> to not come on, you know, Lieutenant I, Governor. You know. <laughs> well, let, okay, let me put, let me put a fine point on this. In campaigning, right? Did anybody like hurl the N-word at you or any kind of epithet or anything like that? Yeah, I did not experience that um, in, in this election. I didn't in terms of the N-word uh, being hurled at me. And, and I think that's to people's credit now. You know, I, I think folks, you know, sometimes use you know code words or, or other things that, you know, maybe getting at something. Um, so you but, had that. Yeah, certainly, certainly, certainly. So there were, there were attacks and, you know, and then there were personal attacks. I mean, you know, people who don't know you, uh, you know, say things about you or you know, just try to drag you down into the mud. And, and unfortunately, there are so many more people who do know you and who can uh, talk about you and, and vouch for you and, and know your history and your experience. So uh, we had a lot of people who support, you know, supported us all throughout uh, the campaign. But yes, there are definitely unpleasant parts uh, of politics. But I would say overall, it was a, an experience that I, you know, enjoyed uh, tremendously. It was rough at times and, and rough and tumble, but uh, I think we got through it, and I think it made you know me a better candidate, and certainly it's making me a better public elected official. All right. Well, then, what's the part of campaigning that you don't like? Because I don't. I can I, only I, pick I, one, or I, oh, oh, hey, if you've got three, if you've got three, that would be great. What are the three things about campaigning that you don't like? Yeah, I, you know, I'd say raising money um, is is not, and I'm yep. sure you've heard that before. It's it's not you know fun. It is a a necessary part uh, of the process, and I, I think in some cases it does overtake. Uh, a little too much of what should be happening uh, in a campaign. So I'd love to, you know, see a world where we focus a little bit less on money. And uh, fundraising is not uh, not my most fun uh, activity in terms of the campaign, but uh, but something that you sort of have to do at some level. I think it should be reasonable. Also, I, you know, I just don't like the mudslinging, the personal attacks that happen in politics. I, mean, I think we're in a world now where people think they can say anything about anyone at any time, you know, and get away with it. And, and, and they can lie about people and, and make falsehoods. And it's just it really is such a destructive and a corrosive part 
you know, of our politics. And, and I always love examples of people who rise above that. And I tried to set an example uh, of doing that in our race. I was attacked personally. I had in one debate, I was, uh, I was, it was said of me that I was not informed enough to talk intelligently uh, about issues. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you may recall that. Well, how do you, how did you respond <laughs> to that? Yeah. I, well, to that's I, barely coded. <laughs> well, there you go. Right. And, and I said, well, a couple of things. I, you know, first I smiled a little bit uh, because, you know, I'd, I'm not, you know, I've been called unintelligent, uh, you know, too many times in my life. But at the same time, uh, I, in that debate, said, well, you know, my professors at uh, Duke University and Columbia Law School, where I was in law review, would be shocked to know that I'm not intelligent enough to talk about legislation or to understand issues. And so I really just try to highlight the fact that I was not going to go down that road. And, you know, there are always opportunities to respond in kind and to attack someone. But I just I just don't think that's where we need to be. It's certainly not who I am. And um, and it's not who we are as Virginians and Americans when we're at our best. I think about people who have inspired us. I think about, you know, President Barack Obama. I think about Governor L. Douglas Wilder. I think about some of my heroes here uh, in Virginia. Uh, Tim Kaine uh, is a great senator. Mark Warner is a great senator. They both were great governors. Um, Congressman Bobby Scott is a dear friend and uh, someone who I always see engaged positively uh, in politics and in life. And so that's what we've got to do. We've got to continue to set those kinds of examples. And even in the face uh, of folks who want to you know, drag us down and and make false attacks about people. You know, that's just not what our politics needs to be. So this was your second time running for statewide office. It was. For LG. You ran for AG. Yes. Four years ago. Yes. Right? Yeah, four years. Yep. Four in years 2013, ago. 2013. 2013. And got beat <laughs> by the man who won re-election. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Mark Herring is the current attorney general. Mark Herring. Why didn't you just throw in the towel after losing that AG race. I mean, you're intelligent. <laughs> the world's your oyster. You're an attorney. Yeah. You could have gone back to the private sector and lived life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it really does go back to that concept that I mentioned earlier about spiritual wealth and spiritual debt. I really felt like this was a calling. And as you mentioned, and my wife, I have to shout her out, Dr. Serena Fairfax, who's a dentist, and uh, we own a family dental practice up in Fairfax, Virginia, and she's really brilliant. We met at Duke University, and uh, she went to the VCU School of Dentistry uh, here in Richmond, and uh, when I was at the like, law school at Columbia, and we have two young kids, an eight-year-old uh, son and a six-year-old daughter. And, uh, and But what I've always thought about uh, is just that notion that people sacrifice so much for us to take the journey in life that we have been fortunate and blessed to have been able to take. And, and God has been so good to us in our lives that I didn't feel like I had the option even to go back, live a comfortable existence and, and not engage in a way that helps a large number of people by what we can do through public policy and through politics. And so it's you know always tough losing uh, anything, but in particularly you know that election where we lost by as I mentioned less than two votes per precinct statewide. So we lost by about a little over two percentage points. And people asked me during that time, they said, "Was it harder to lose by a little bit or to lose by a lot?" I said, "There's only one way I know how to lose, which is <laughs> in that case by a little bit." So I only I only have experience with one. But I stood on the stage the very next morning uh, after that election in uh, June of 2013 with Mark Herring and, and Terry McAuliffe, who was then uh, running for governor, and Ralph North, my dear friend, uh, who's now a governor, was running for lieutenant governor then, and endorsed the whole ticket, uh, endorsed Mark. They asked me to co-chair the campaign. I agreed that day. Uh, so this is the morning after the election, losing a close one, because it really wasn't about me. And I just have to remind myself, politics should not be about the individual politician. It needs to be about the broader message of progress that you can bring 
to the largest number of people. And if we start taking it away from some of the personality-centric politics and instead say, does this message, does this vision represent one that includes more people and that gives us hope and opportunity for progress, that's when I think we get to a better place. You mentioned Senator Mark Warner. Yes. Senator Tim Kaine. Yes. Both of whom were governors yes. of Virginia. <laughs> L. Douglas Wilder, who you've mentioned a gazillion times already. <laughs> Make sure was, he knows that, Who too. was governor <laughs> of Virginia. Yes. To, I want to point out to listeners who might not know this, the governor of Virginia can only serve <laughs> one term. Yes. And as you've... The, governor Wilder was Lieutenant Governor Wilder. <laughs> That's correct. Governor Northam was Lieutenant <laughs> Governor Northam. Considering I don't see where you're you going have, with this. <laughs> you don't see where I'm going with this? So after after one term, do you want do you literally want to follow in the footsteps of Governor Northam? Well, I'll tell you what. I, I will say this. Uh, it is an honor to serve right now as lieutenant governor. I'm I know you only got you only been here for like a month. <laughs> that's right. That's I know right. The question's a little unfair, <laughs> but it seems as though you are on a very a very clear path with several several off-ramps. Well, I, I will say this. I, I've been flattered uh, by the amount of you know, energy uh, that we have seen around not only our campaign this last go-round, but by our you know, early service right now as lieutenant governor presiding over the Senate, and very grateful to people who have reached out and, and said that they want to be part of what we hope we'll get to do together over a period of time. But, you know, certainly have not made any decisions on that front. It is, as you mentioned, a, a path that others have taken, but and, and one that certainly people will, will talk about for some time. But, you know, I wanted to you know, make sure we get General Assembly session under our belt and, and things right now are going very well and, and then sort of think about options uh, out into the future. But uh, we really are, you know, seeing a whole bunch of people who have gotten excited about you know, this ride mm -hmm. uh, that we're on. And, and, you know, I think that's a great thing. So at the beginning of this ride, I and mean, by that I mean the, the lieutenant governor race during the campaign, right. Charlottesville happened. Yes. Talk about that period, sure. not in terms of the campaign, but right. just is in, in terms of a, of a Virginian. Right. To see what was happening in Charlottesville. And what yeah. did that mean to you? And what did that say to you about where the country is. Yeah, it, it was really heartbreaking um, in so many respects. Of course, you know, we lost three lives that day. Uh, Heather Heyer, who a uh, really wonderful uh, young woman, and, and she was killed tragically by someone who clearly had hate uh, in his heart. And uh, that video that we've all seen, just really something that's it's difficult to watch even today. Uh, also, we lost two troopers that day, tragically. And I went to the funeral of one of them, uh, Burke Bates and, and his beautiful family and, and the loss that they have had to cope with. And and it's just, it was a wound uh, that will be felt deeply, not just in Charlottesville, a really resilient community, a beautiful place that I love to, to visit uh, often, but, but also for Virginia and for the nation. I do think in some respects, it was another turning point uh, and another moment where we were on the stage of history. And and I think people have chosen how they're going to respond to the hate that they saw, not only on August the 12th, but the day before. Uh, the torches uh, were marched, you know, onto UVA's campus. And, and I was proud of all the people who spoke up with moral courage to condemn the hatred 
uh, to say that, you know, we will not be a place where white supremacy and, and Nazism is tolerated. You know, my grandfather's a World War II veteran, fought in the Red Ball Express in a the European theater. And, you know, we as Americans defeated the Nazis. And my grandfather fought against them, along with so many other brave people over time. So what we're seeing in this resurgence of hate is going to lose. It is going to lose in the long run. And as Dr. King you know, famously said, the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think we uh, saw another instance of, of that occurring uh, in Charlottesville. And I'll share one just very brief story about Charlottesville. And, and again, I said, I don't really believe in coincidences and all the things that have happened in the course of this campaign uh, can't really be explained uh, in my view, except by Providence in so many ways. And uh, I happened to be in Charlottesville a little bit after the August 12th incident. And, and it was actually on the day of the solar eclipse. Uh, which I know no one reported on that, so you, it wasn't. A, <laughs> it's a little-known story that, that didn't get any traction yet last year, but this was the day of the solar eclipse, and so this was maybe a, a couple weeks later, and I just so happened to be there uh, as part of the campaign, and I wanted to go out and see the solar eclipse that everybody had been talking about. So I was walking through the streets downtown Charlottesville. I eventually get to a park, was elevated uh, on a hill where there were a number of people gathered. As I get close to the hill, uh, it turns out that the park was actually Emancipation Park. So this is the place where the Robert E. Lee statue sits and where much of the violence was touched off during that period in August. And so I get there and, and I see people I know. And just as I you know, go to look up uh, at the eclipse, I had the fancy glasses I on. I was going to say, <laughs> please, I hope you had your I, eyes Unlike protected. the president, uh, right. you know, I believe in science. And so uh, <laughs> and I like my vision. So I, <laughs> so, I, so I put the glasses on and and literally at the precise moment I went to go look up uh, at the appointed time, it started to rain. Uh, and the clouds actually moved in and blocked the solar eclipse. So there are all these people out there who were looking at it, maybe about 150 people were staring up, and we can't see it. And it literally was at the precise moment. And so we're sitting out there, we're trying to wait, we're getting soaked in the rain and waiting it out. Eventually I went and took shelter with some other folks and tried to wait it out. In the final few minutes of our window to be able to see it in Charlottesville, uh, we walked back outside and this amazing thing happened. The, the clouds parted just enough uh, and the rain stopped just enough that we were able to finally see the eclipse. And it was this powerful thing to behold. And, and we're staring in awe for the last couple of minutes. And then as I was leaving Park and downtown, it was this amazing thing to happen. The clouds that were in the sky previously all basically parted, went away. The sun came out and shone incredibly brightly. And the rain stopped for the rest of the day. It was one of the most beautiful days I can remember seeing in a long time. And I thought to myself, and I was talking with my team and I thought that was the perfect political metaphor for the times that we're living in today. Um, I think when you look at what Donald Trump has, has tried to do in, in terms of eclipsing all the accomplishments and the progress that President Barack Obama and others fought for and have won, that's really what we're living through. Uh, he's trying to undo everything when it comes to DACA and uh, so many other humane policies and uh, protections around health care and trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and uh, so many other things uh, that happened. The thing that I love, though, about that entire metaphor, as I sort of thought through it, was that it reminded me uh, that eclipses are temporary and they don't last forever. And this political eclipse that we're living through is temporary and it will not last forever. But we have got to fight to make sure that it goes away. Unlike a naturally occurring eclipse where all you have to do is stand back and look at it for a few minutes with your glasses, uh, for a political eclipse, you actually got to fight to make sure that it changes. Um, and I think that's the, the battle that we're in. It certainly was the battle we were in in Virginia. Uh, and I think it's now, we're seeing it in Alabama and now in Georgia and other places. But this political eclipse will come to an end. Are Democrats ready to 
win that fight? Because when you look at what's <laughs> happening between the Bernie wing and right. the everybody else wing, right. Democrats can't do anything right. The DNC <laughs> is is a mess. They're gonna they're gonna <laughs> blow everything in eighteen and in twenty. Do you see it that way? I, I don't see it that way. And I and I also want to give a give a shout out to uh, Tom Perez and Keith Ellison and, and also my dear friend Michael Blake, uh, vice uh, chair of the DNC. They came in and invested heavily in Virginia. And it paid dividends. They, in fact, campaigned personally many times. I campaigned with uh, each one of them. And, and there are others, of course, uh, at the DNC and in the party. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris came in, Senator Cory Booker, and, and, and so many others. And so I actually am seeing the opposite happen. If we look at Virginia as an example, uh, Governor Northam won by about nine percentage points. We won by you know almost six, but it, even being outspent. And by the way, I was the only person on the ballot who was an unelected official going up against an elected official. Uh, and yet we still won by almost six percentage points. You then see that uh, happening in Alabama, where I, I bet a lot of people did not predict that Doug Jones, now Senator Jones, could have won that race. And I think the DNC made some very you know, strategic, quiet investments, and, and they importantly listened to folks on the ground. So listen to the grassroots. Absolutely. Listen to the grassroots. Following instead of, instead of trying to impose. That's exactly right. That's a critical piece. And, and we did a lot of that in Virginia in our campaign. We've got to listen. And I think there is a lot of evidence that, that this DNC is listening. And we can all improve everything that we do in, in terms of engaging in politics. But I see us on a really great upward trajectory. I think that 2018 is going to be a great year. We're definitely going to reelect Senator Tim Kaine here in Virginia. Uh, we're all in for him. But I think we have a great shot to take back the House. Again, here in Virginia, we went from having 34 seats in the House delegates out of 100 to now having 49. We picked up 15 seats. And there was one election that came down literally to drawing a name out of a bowl. It was uh, it was a race where the Democrat was down by 10 on election day. The recount, she was up by one. There was then another recount uh, that then made it tied and they pulled a name out of the bowl. And that's the only reason that the Republican won. Uh, we are seeing signs that there is something special happening uh, in our political life uh, in this moment. And I think it's important that people come together, again, make it not about individuals or personalities or politicians, but make it about the progress that we can make together. And and so I, I, that whole wildfire of, of progressive change, I really do uh, believe that it's what's happening. It's, we've seen it uh, in these last election cycles, and I'll do everything I can uh, to help make sure we continue on the path for progress. Justin Fairfax, 41st Lieutenant Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from the Post Newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.